Welcome to this week's edition of From the MLJ Archive, a weekly radio program featuring the Bible teaching ministry of the late Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. We are currently listening to the doctor's famous series from the Book of Romans, which he delivered to crowds on Friday nights from 1955 until 1968. But what you are about to hear is just as contemporary as when he preached it. And so let us now open our Bibles and our hearts as we listen to the doctor. We come this evening in our study of this ninth chapter of the Epistle to the Romans to verses 17 and 18. For the scripture saith unto Pharaoh, Even for this purpose have I raised thee up, that I might show my power in thee, and that my power might be declared throughout all the earth. Therefore hath he mercy on whom he will have mercy. And whom he will, he hardeneth. Now you remember that in our analysis of this uh, passage, beginning at verse 14 and going on to verse 24, uh, we indicated that uh, the apostle divides up his matter in this uh, kind of way. There were two uh, main difficulties or objections which could be brought uh, with respect to the teaching that he has given from verse 6 to verse 13. And the first one was that uh, it seems unjust and unrighteous in God to show his mercy to some and not to others, and particularly in view of the fact that he teaches that he does so even before they were born, quite irrespective of any action or any merit on their part. That was the first objection. The second was that it seems equally unjust and unrighteous on the part of God in the words that we are given with regard to Esau, namely, Esau have I hated. Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. People take objection to both aspects of that one great statement. So that uh, the division of the matter is that he begins in verse 14 to deal with these difficulties and objections. And we saw last Friday night that in verses 15 and 16, he deals with the first. I have called verse 14 to verse 18 the statement of the case. And the statement of the case we subdivided into the statement of two cases. It's a general case, but he looks at the two sides of it. The aspect of mercy and this other aspect of hardening or of hating. Now, in verses 15 and 16, the apostle took up the first aspect of the general case, or if you prefer it, the first subsidiary case, and uh, he deals with it. Now, that's what we did last Friday night, and so we found him summing up by saying, So then, it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. Now then, in verse 17, we come to his handling of the second case the second subsidiary case, or the second aspect of the general main case, this charge of unrighteousness in God, in the light of this teaching. And he starts off by saying, for the scripture saith, which might very well lead us to think that the word for means that verse 17 follows in its teaching directly upon verses 15 and 16. But actually this time it doesn't. Now, 
here is an interesting point. If we only let the scriptures speak to us, we shall evade and avoid most difficulties. The four here clearly does not indicate that the subject matter here is a continuation of what he's been dealing with in verses 15 and 16, for quite patently it isn't. Well, what does it connect with them? Well, it goes back, of course, to verses 13 and 14. Verse 13, as I've just reminded you, puts the general position like this. Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. Then the objection, what shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God for loving Jacob and for hating Esau? God forbid. Then verse 15 and 16 show that there's no unrighteousness in loving Jacob, in showing mercy to whom he will show mercy. Then having dealt with that, he says, well, I'll take up the other one now. What about the hating of Esau? And he introduces that. So the four at the beginning of this verse 17 really connects us with the statement in verses 13 and 14. It's the second aspect of this general criticism, or as I'm putting it, it is the statement of the second subsidiary case. Very well. Now then, here we really are looking at one of the most difficult problems that ever confronts anybody who ever reads the Bible. The problem before us last Friday night, I'm sure we all felt, was not really a difficult one at all. I think we were able to show that. The remarkable thing is that anybody receives mercy at all, for we none of us deserve it. And as we all deserve nothing, well, we're entirely in God's hands, and he has the right to show mercy to whom he will show mercy. Obvious illustrations indicate this. Are we to be restricted in any way in showing a favor to people? If we're in a position of complete freedom, that people owe us nothing at all, is there any reason why we shouldn't uh, show favor to one and not to another? There's nothing wrong in that, and we all recognize that. If you've got a sum of money, and you say, well, I'd like to show what I think of certain people by giving them a gift. Is there anything wrong in your giving a gift to one person and not to another, when neither of them deserves anything at all from you? and has no claim whatsoever upon you. Well, it's the sort of thing that is constantly done in life, and nobody with any sense really complains about that at all. Of course, there are difficult people who think they should have everything always and can never see any harm and wrong in themselves, but we recognize them, and we don't pay much attention to what they say. No, no, the man who's got the gift in his hands is at perfect liberty to give it as he pleases and as he chooses. And God, in an infinitely bigger manner, does that with respect to us. There's no real difficulty, surely, at that point. But now we come to something that does at first, at any rate, seem to us to be much more difficult. And, of course, it is actually much more difficult. Or let me put it like this. There is nothing, I imagine, in the whole range of the scriptural teaching which causes such offense to the natural men and to many uninstructed Christians as this very statement at which we are looking together this evening. For the scripture saith unto Pharaoh, even for this same purpose have I raised thee up, that I might show my power in thee, and that my name might be declared throughout all the earth. Therefore comes the general conclusion to the two cases, he hath he mercy on whom he will have mercy, and whom he will he hardeneth. That's the rock of offense. 
the hardening. Now then, let's look at this statement then. And the first thing for us to do once more this evening is to take the terms as they are used by the great apostle. I'm taking it for granted that uh, you were all here on a night such as this because you're not, not afraid of difficulties. I take it you are here because uh, you don't say because the thing's difficult, that therefore you don't examine it and don't try to understand it. I take it that you're here because you want light on it, that you don't shy off like a frightened horse, and because you don't like a thing, say, well, I, I, I don't look at that. I keep to the parts of Scripture that I like. Of course, that's quite fatal. It's dishonoring to God uh, without mentioning that it is dishonoring also to the Scripture. Well, now then, let's see how the Apostle handles it. And the first thing we notice is that he says, the Scripture saith unto Pharaoh. Now, that's an interesting statement in and of itself. Because if you go back to Exodus 9.16, you will find that it was God who spoke through Moses. But here the apostle refers to it as scripture, which tells us once more something that we must never forget about the scripture. The scripture is God's word. And the terms you will find in the New Testament are always used interchangeably. God said, the Spirit saith, the scripture saith, the Holy Ghost saith. These are the terms which are used interchangeably with regard to this book which we call the Bible. And therefore I say it is always important that at the very outset we, we should carry that in our minds. In other words, we are not dealing here with the opinions of the Apostle Paul. That's something that's been said a great deal, hasn't it? And you hear people saying it, oh, that's only what Paul says. Well, of course, if you start speaking like that, you... What you're really doing is to show you a view of the scriptures. This man is an apostle of Jesus Christ. He's divinely inspired. He's been given a revelation. This isn't Paul's opinion. It's a terrible thing for people to say that. When they don't like something, oh, that's, that's only the apostle Paul. He's teaching about women in the church. Oh, that was only the apostle Paul, of course. You see, by saying that, you're denying the doctrine that the scripture is the uniquely inspired and inerrant word of God. Let's be careful, my dear friends, how we handle the scriptures. You see, it was Moses who actually spoke to Pharaoh, but here, says Paul, the scripture said, God said, these things are synonymous and they're interchangeable. Very well, but the, 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 the real argument which the apostle develops and deploys, of course, is this. As we saw last week, this really ought to settle it for us. If the scripture saith a thing, well, there's no more to be said. We've just got to accept it. As Christians, we are people who submit ourselves to this book. We know nothing apart from this book. We are not philosophers. We are not seekers and searchers after the truth. We are children. We say we know nothing. We are ignorant. We need to be enlightened. We need to be taught. We believe this is God's revelation. Here is God speaking. And we submit ourselves to it. So that when you're dealing with a Christian in a matter that is difficult to understand, you say, the scripture said. And immediately it ought to be the end of all argument and the end of all doubt and disputation. The scripture said. Now he's used that argument in both these subsidiary cases that he puts forward. We saw before that he says, he saith to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. Very well, if God said that to Moses, there it is. It's not a matter of opinion, God has said it. Here again, we have exactly the same thing. Whatever God says is 
always right, it's always just, and it's always true. The apostle is saying here, look here, I'm not making a deduction here. I'm not expressing my own opinion. This is what God has said. You say that it sounds as if it's unrighteous that God should say, Esau, I hated. You don't like this aspect of rejection as well as failing to understand the aspect of mercy. But says Paul, you shouldn't, you shouldn't raise this question. The scripture has said God himself hath spoken. And then he goes on to quote this statement which God gave to Moses to utter and to speak to Pharaoh, that great power, that great potentate, under whose authority the children of Israel were at that point. It's there, I say, in Exodus 9, 16. Very well. Because God has said it. There can't be any element of unrighteousness about it. This is the end of all dispute. However, the apostle obviously is anxious that we should consider the statement. And what is the actual statement? Well, now again, let's look at the terms. Because people do find difficulty with them. Here's the first term. For this same purpose have I raised thee up. Now there's the first phrase, this phrase about raising thee up. God said to Pharaoh through Moses, I have raised thee up for this purpose. What does it mean by saying raise thee up? Well, it's a, a term that's liable to misunderstanding. And it is because of the misunderstanding, I think, of the meaning of the term that people get into trouble. A better translation would be this. I have caused thee to stand. Rather than I have raised thee up, I have caused thee to stand. The meaning conveyed in the original term is allowing someone to appear or bringing someone forward onto the stage of events. That's the notion. Uh, somebody has translated it like this. For this purpose, I have raised thee up and set thee on the stage of action. Oh, Charles Hodges, I believe, a very good translation here. Hodge translates it like this. For this purpose have I raised thee up and placed thee where thou art, instead of cutting thee off at once. Now that's a very good way of putting it. I have raised thee up and placed thee where thou art. I have caused thee to stand. I have caused thee to appear. I have brought thee forward on the stage of events. Now, all that is not just a matter of opinion. Uh, they put forward uh, these translations, these different authorities, on the exact meaning, the root meaning of the word. It's a difficult expression, and uh, there is the general consensus of opinion with regard to the exact meaning of the word. Now then, let's be clear that we understand this. For this purpose have I raised thee up. Now the danger is to assume that it means for this purpose have I created thee. But it doesn't mean that. That is not the notion that is carried here. There is no suggestion here of creation. The whole idea is bringing onto the scene of action at that particular point and juncture in history. That's the notion. God's not saying here, I created thee, Pharaoh, in order. No, no. The whole idea is that he brought Pharaoh into that particular position at that particular point for this purpose. We must get rid of any notion that he was made or created for this purpose. 
Very well, there is our first term. But let's go on to this second term, the term that's mentioned at the end of verse 18. Only will he hardeneth. This hardening process. Now here I say, is the sort of rock of offense to large numbers of people. What, what does to harden mean? Well, to harden means to render obstinate. To render stubborn. That's what it means. It uh, doesn't merely mean to punish, it's more than that. It literally means to render obstinate and stubborn. And you will find that the term is used ten times in the book of Exodus, so that there can be no question about it at all. Here again, you see, there's often been that attempt to say, ah, oh, yes, that man Paul, he was a legalist, he was a lawyer, and he, he can think in terms like this, but... This sort of thing is remote from God. Well, actually, the history in the book of Exodus uses this term ten times over, so that there shall be no mistake about it at all. But here is where the difficulty comes in. The record in Exodus not only tells us that God hardened Pharaoh's heart, but it also tells us that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. Now, there is uh, an example of that. You'll find it in the eighth chapter of the book of Exodus in two separate statements. You'll find it in Exodus 8, 15. But when Pharaoh saw that there was respite, he hardened his heart and hearkened not unto them, as the Lord had said. And there's another one in verse 32. And Pharaoh hardened his heart at this time also, neither would he let the people go. Well, very well then, here is the problem which confronts us. God hardened Pharaoh's heart. But also we are told that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. How do we resolve this? Well, there are some who have tried to resolve it by saying, Ah, oh, well, that's quite simple. All it really means is that God permitted him to do this. That God allowed Pharaoh to harden himself. But unfortunately that won't do. The word used is an active word. It's not a permissive idea at all. The statement is quite definitely that God rendered Pharaoh stubborn and obstinate. It wasn't merely that he permitted him to become thus, or allowed him to become. And, of course, the very word that is used in the 18th verse should put this quite clear to us. Therefore, uh, whom he wills, Therefore hath he mercy on whom he will have mercy, and whom he will, he hardeneth. There it puts it squarely and solidly, as it were, on to God, that God does this, that it isn't merely a negative matter of permission, but is something which God does actively. But quite apart from that, we've got a statement there in the fourth chapter of Exodus, in the 21st verse, which surely should put us all quite clear about this once and forever. That's why I read it just now. And the Lord said unto Moses, When thou goest to return into Egypt, see that thou do all these wonders before Pharaoh, which I have put in thine hand. But I will harden his heart, that he shall not let the people go. So you see, it isn't God... Uh, just allowing Pharaoh to react in this wrong way when Moses speaks to him before Moses had ever been sent to Pharaoh 
God tells him beforehand, I will harden his heart that he shall not let the people go. So we must get rid of this notion of permission. Or that God just does nothing and allows Pharaoh to harden his heart. No, God tells Moses beforehand that he's going to do this. So we must take it in a very active and in a very definite sense. We can't get out of the difficulty in that way. The temptation always is to try to slide out of difficulties by explaining them away. You can't do that. We've got to face this honestly as well as squarely. Well now then, how do we deal with these two aspects of the statement? Well, the answer is that they're both true. God hardened the heart of Pharaoh, and Pharaoh hardened his own heart as well. There's no real conflict between the two things. The point the apostle is establishing is that God ordained that Pharaoh should be there at that particular point and juncture in order that through him and by means of him he might make known this, his might and his name throughout the whole world. Very well. There is the statement. You notice the procedure. Take your terms, make sure of the meaning of each particular term, then take your statement as a whole and see what it says. And that's the conclusion we arrive at, that we are being reminded here quite definitely that God did harden Pharaoh's heart, in addition to the fact that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. Now then, having got clear as to what Paul is saying, we now come to the meaning. How do we react to all this? We did exactly the same thing last week. I'm repeating the same process, because the apostle's argument is a, uh, it's a repetition in the mode and method of what he did in the first case. How do we now face this? What do we make of it? Well, I don't want to keep you, but I must start with one negative. Let me give you an illustration of how we must not face it. And here I'm going to read you a quotation from the commentary on the Epistle to the Romans by Dr. C.H. Dodd. It's a commentary in the Moffat series that had great popularity before the, first, before the last war and has been popular since then. Now this is how he approaches this. Uh, having dealt with verses uh, 15 and 16, he now comes to verses 17 and 18. And this is what we read. The next step, however, that Paul takes seems to be a false step. It was not necessary for his argument to show that God also creates bad dispositions in those that are not to be saved, that he not only has mercy on anyone just as he pleases, but also makes anyone stubborn just as he pleases. You notice his point. It was not necessary for his argument to do this, says Dr. Dobb. It was enough for Paul's purpose here that the positive working of God's redeeming purpose should be self-determined in regard to its objects. This position is guaranteed by data of the religious consciousness. For the truly religious man knows that any good that is in him is there solely by the grace of God, whatever he may make of this in his philosophy. You see, he says there's no difficulty about that first one. The religious consciousness has to agree with that. Whatever a man may call himself theologically, when he's on his knees, he has to admit and confess that he's had it all from God and that he is what he is by the grace of God. He said in the first case, there was no difficulty. Religious consciousness 
really has to agree with it. But to attribute one's evil dispositions to God is a sophistication. One may feel driven to it by logic, but the conscience does not corroborate it. The doctrine of sin which we have met in the earlier chapters of the epistles of the epistle does not admit of this solution of the problem. It was, however, a good argument ad hominem, for the Jewish objector would be bound to recognize the authority of the scripture, which said that God himself made Pharaoh stubborn, and could not complain if Paul gave it an application of which he had not thought. You see with the argument, he says, now, of course, while our consciences can't corroborate this, Paul was very clever there. He knew he was dealing with Jews who believed the scripture, and therefore, when he quotes the scripture against them, they can't answer him. Clever debating point, but our consciences don't corroborate it. Then he goes on. The Hebrew mind tended to determinism, attributing to the omnipotent will of God as first cause all consequences of second causes. And this tendency was strengthened in the rabbinic period by a definite fight against dualism which might introduce into the universe a second power over against the one God. Such dualism was familiar to the Jews through the Zoroastrian religion of Persia. But a fully ethical conception of God makes itself contradictory to attribute evil to his will. Paul shared the tendency to determinism. But when he had fully in view the revelation of God in Christ as pure love, he could not hold that sin was the result of his, God's action. Here, in these verses we are dealing with, his thought declines from its highest level. And while the argument is primarily ad hominem, it does lead up to a doctrine for which he later himself, he later makes himself responsible, namely, that by divine decree Israel was blinded to the significance of the gospel. Chapter 11, verse 8. That doctrine is set forth, set forth with qualifications which partly draw the venom from it. Here he pushes what we must describe as an unethical determinism to its logical extreme in order to force his opponent to confess the absolute and arbitrary sovereignty of God. I've read all that to you to show you how not to react and how not to interpret this statement here, which the Apostle quotes from the book of Exodus. We needn't stay with that. All we need say about it is this. Here is a man who doesn't hesitate to set himself up as a greater authority on ethics and the love of God than the Apostle Paul. Here is a man who doesn't hesitate to sit in judgment on the Apostle Paul. And to say Paul is quite wrong in saying this. He's fallen from his own standard. You see, he is a greater man and a greater mind and a greater spirit and a greater saint than the apostle. And he looks on as a judge. He says, now the apostle at other times, of course, has this wonderful conception of the love of God. He's let himself down here. All that we need say is this. That the moment you adopt that attitude, you've got no authority at all except what you think yourself. If you think you can sit in judgment on apostles, well, then you are the authority. It's your religious consciousness. It's what you think and what you feel. If you come across a statement that doesn't seem to me to be ethical, you say it's wrong. Paul has made a mistake here. He's been carried away by his own logic. In order to score a debating point over the Jews, he went too far. Shouldn't have done it. 
And you're left, I say, in that position, which is the position of men who don't submit to the scriptures. They are the authority. And you've got to believe what they say. If we don't understand a thing or don't like it, we say it's wrong. Well, the moment you take that attitude towards the scripture, what do you believe and what don't you believe? And, of course, he's so wrong in the statement uh, where he says that Paul here uh, attributes any ethical wrongness to God, or that he puts the idea of ethical wrongness into a man. Paul doesn't say that at all, as I'm hoping to show you. Well, now, I've read you the quotation for this reason, that you will find that the bulk of modern commentators take that view. They follow Dr. Dodd in this matter, and he's but a typical and representative sample of the way in which men come to the word of God, trusting to themselves and their own understanding, and not hesitating to arrogate to themselves a superiority even to the divinely inspired apostles. Our view, I take it, all of us, is this, that our whole faith is built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, and that we would know nothing at all were it not for the teaching which we have through these apostles and prophets. This is the whole foundation of our entire position. It is always wrong to sit in judgment upon the scriptural teaching. That is simply to exalt modern man and to put him above the very word of God, this scripture which the apostle equates with the mind and the heart of God himself. Well, very well, that's not the way to do it. Well, what is the right way? Well, the right way, of course, is this. Whenever you have a difficult passage of Scripture, compare it with other Scriptures. This is not an isolated statement at all. This is not a sort of lapse on the part of the Apostle Paul, who was so fond of arguing and so ready to win a debating point over his opponents that he says things he shouldn't say. There are many other statements in the scripture that say almost exactly what we've got here. Now let me call your attention to some of them. Let's go back to the book of Genesis. And there we'll find something along the same lines. Genesis chapter 45, verses 7 and 8. Here now we have a picture of Joseph down in Egypt. He was the great man in Egypt, you remember. The sort of food controller. The great men under, under Pharaoh in Egypt. And his brothers have come down, you remember the whole story, the beautiful story. But at last, Moses, uh, Joseph makes himself known to his brethren. And they, of course, are filled with terror and alarm, because you remember they'd sold him. They'd treated him in a shameful and in an abominable manner. And when they realize that this great man, in whose hands they are entirely, is none other than their own brother, Joseph, whom they've treated in such a shocking manner, they're filled with terror. But this is how Joseph speaks to them. He says, And God sent me before you to preserve you a posterity in the earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So now, it was not you that sent me hither, but God. And he hath made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house and a ruler throughout all the land of Egypt. What an extraordinary statement. These brothers, you remember, of Joseph, as I say, in that shameful manner, they first of all decided to kill him. But one of them pleaded for him, and then these traveling people came along, and somebody said, well, let's sell him to them. So they sold him. It was a most disgraceful, disgraceful action. But Joseph puts it like that. God sent me before you to preserve your posterity in the earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So now it was not you that sent me hither, but God. 
This evil action of the brethren is attributed, you see, to God. And the same point is made again by Joseph. You'll find in the 50th chapter, the last chapter of Genesis, in verse 20. These brethren, again, after the death of their father, Jacob, were terrified. They thought that after the old men had gone, that Joseph would now probably turn on them. But he puts it like this. But as for you, ye thought evil against me, but God meant it unto good to bring to pass, as it is this day, to save much people alive. There's a perfect statement, it seems to me, of this whole doctrine. Then go along to Psalm 105 for a second. Psalm 105 and verse 25. Here again you've got the psalmist reviewing the story of the children of Israel. So in verse 23 he says, Israel also came into Egypt, and Jacob sojourned in the land of Ham. And he increased his people greatly, and made them stronger than their enemies. Then verse 25, he turned their heart, that's to say the heart of the Egyptians, to hate his people, to deal subtly with his servants. God turned the heart of the Egyptians to hate his own people, the children of Israel. Then coming over into the New Testament, there are others. I'm just giving you some of what seem to me to be the most important and crucial statements. Go to the Gospel according to St. John and to chapter 12. And there we read from verse 37 to verse 41. John 12, 37 to 41. But though he had done so many miracles before them, yet they believed not on him that the saying of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which he spake. Lord, who hath believed our report, and to whom hath the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe, because that Isaiah said again, He, God, hath blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, that they should not see with their eyes, nor understand with their heart, and be converted, and I should heal them. These things said Isaiah when he saw his glory and spake of him. Especially verse 39 is important there. But now come along to the book of the Acts of the Apostles. And there there's a remarkable statement in the sermon preached by Peter on the day of Pentecost as recorded in the second chapter of the book of the Acts and in verse 23. Peter is now preaching to this assembled company in Jerusalem. Ye men of Israel, he says, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, as ye yourselves also know. Listen. Him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. He's referring to the crucifixion. And he says two things. Him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, you took and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. They had done something, yes, but it was God who was behind it all and brought it to pass. The determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God led to this action that was done first by the Jews taking him and then handing him over 
to these wicked men, these pagan Romans, actually to do the deed. You have taken, and by wicked hands, the hands of wicked men, by the hands of pagan men, profane men, have crucified and slain. Then you will find that in the prayer offered by the church, as recorded in the fourth chapter of the book of the Acts of the Apostles, in verse 28, you've got exactly the same thing. Here they are praying. You remember that Peter and John had been tried and they'd been set free on condition that they stopped preaching and teaching in the name of this Jesus. They went back to their own company and reported all that had happened. And we are told that when they heard that, they lifted up their voice to God with one accord. And they begin to pray. Then, this is what you get in verse 28. Verse 27. For of a truth against thy holy child Jesus, whom thou hast anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together for to do whatsoever thy hand and thy counsel determined before to be done. Again they refer to the death of our Lord upon, upon the cross. And what we are told is that Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel were simply doing whatsoever God's hand and counsel determined before to be done. The death of Christ, you say, was accomplished by men. Yes, but still more important is this. It was God who brought it to pass. It was God's action. He used men actually to do it, the physical part of it. But it is the predeterminate counsel and foreknowledge of God. It is God's counsel determined before was really happening. The death on the cross is God's way of giving us salvation. Never think of the cross of Christ in terms of the action of men only. If you do, you've got it wrong. It's God who is in Christ reconciling the world unto himself. It is God who hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. It is God who hath made him to be sin. Who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Here it is. Preached on the day of Pentecost and ever afterwards. God's action. Though men come in it in this extraordinary manner. Well, so you will find that in the 11th chapter, as Dr. Dodd has reminded us, in the um, 8th verse, you've got this further statement of the same thing. Here we are dealing with this blindness in Israel. According as it is written, God hath given them the spirit of slumber, eyes that they should not see, and ears that they should not hear. You see, Dr. Dodd doesn't pay any attention to the fact that uh, the apostle is quoting scripture there again. He attributes it to a lapse on the part of Paul. He doesn't recognize scripture, but Paul, in both instances, is quoting scripture. It isn't Paul's idea. It's God who said it. It's the scripture that said it. No, no, this is just a lapse on the part of Paul. But there is a specific statement of it, the same idea in Romans 11 and verse 8. But come along to 2 Thessalonians 2.11. And you've got it once more. 2 Thessalonians 2.11. Now we're looking forward. And for this cause, God shall send them strong delusion that they should believe a lie that they all might be damned who believed not the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. For this cause, God shall send them strong delusion that they should believe a lie. You've got the same doctrine taught in 1 Peter 2.8. 1 Peter 2.8. 
Here he is describing our Lord as the stone of stumbling and the rock of offense, even to them which stumble at the word, being disobedient, whereunto also they were appointed. And my last quotation is in the epistle of Jude. And it's in the fourth verse of the epistle of Jude. For there are certain men crept in unawares who were before of old ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men, turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. The material statement is, who were before of old ordained to this condemnation. Now, there are these parallel statements which we have in the scripture. What then is the meaning? You see the way to approach it. Here's a statement. Here are parallel statements. It's something that's taught in the scripture. It's not some temporary lapse or failure on the part of the great apostle, this clever debater who stoops just to win a debating point. Unethical. Our consciences and religious consciousness rejecting it. No, no. It's plain teaching in the scripture, not confined to the Apostle Paul at all. Well, having seen that, now then, what do we say? What is the teaching? Well, here it is. It doesn't mean that God creates sin. Neither does it mean that God creates an evil disposition in the heart, as Dr. Dodd suggests. God doesn't do that. God cannot do that. We've got a statement by the Apostle James that ought to put us right on this once and forever. Well, he says in the first chapter and verse 13, Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. God is not the author of evil. God cannot be tempted by evil, and he never tempts anyone. Well, very well then, what is this teaching? Oh, the teaching is this. What God does is to aggravate what is already there. He doesn't create it. He doesn't put it there. But he aggravates what is there for his own great purpose. God never made Pharaoh an unbeliever. But because he was an unbeliever, God aggravated his unbelief in order to bring to pass his own great purpose of showing his power and his glory. He didn't create the evil disposition in Pharaoh. We are not told that. All we are told is this, that Pharaoh being the man he was, God used him for his own purpose. And not only that, God saw to it that he was there at that particular point and juncture in order that he might do this through him. Very well. How does God do this? How is it that God hardens the heart in this way? We are told that he hardened the heart of Pharaoh. Pharaoh, of course, hardened his own heart also. Pharaoh was opposed to God and all that God was doing. And God makes that even worse. He hasn't made him evil. He hasn't produced any wrong. He's aggravated what was already there. Now, this is the teaching. It's the explanation of these various passages of Scripture I've read to you. How does God do this? Well, you know, already in the epistle to the Romans, we've been told one of the ways in which he does it. And that was a way back in the first chapter. I read this in verses 24, 26, and 28 in the first chapter of the epistle to the Romans. Verse 24. Wherefore God also gave them up to uncleanness through the lusts of their own hearts to dishonor their own bodies between themselves. 
verse 26. For this cause God gave them up unto vile affections. For even their women did change the natural use into that which is against nature. God gave them up. Verse 28. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient. What does that mean? Well, one of his ways of hardening is this. He withdraws his restraining influence. God puts a restraint upon sin. This world would be complete chaos and hell if God didn't do that. The world fell into sin, but God put a limit. He puts a restraint upon it. And the moment he draws back his restraining influence, you get hardening. When the sun is withdrawn, well, we see it at the present time, the ground is hard and frozen. When the sun will come, it will melt. The withdrawal of the sun produces a hardening. So one of the ways in which God produces hardening is to withdraw the restraining influence, hand them over to a reprobate heart, leave them to themselves, take away everything that tends to produce the softening. But secondly, we've seen in chapter 7 of Romans another way in which he causes hardening. And that is this. By emphasizing his justice and his righteousness in the law, he hardens the hearts of men. Now, listen to Romans 7. Here it is in verse 5. For when we were in the flesh, the motions of sins which were by the law did work in our members to bring forth fruit unto death. Or look at it again in further verses, in verses 8, 9, and 10, in Romans 7. But sin taking occasion by the commandment, wrought in me all manner of concupiscence. For without the law sin was dead, for I was alive without the law once, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. And the commandment which was ordained to life, I found to be unto death. And in verse 13 he sums it all up. Was then that which is good made death unto me? God forbid, but sin, that it might appear sin, working death in me by that which is good that sin by the commandment might become exceeding sinful. In other words, it means this. Here is a man who is a sinner. The law comes to him and begins to speak to him about this sin and to denounce it, and it infuriates him. And he becomes a still greater sinner. The law that tells him not to makes him do it all the more. Not only that, it even inflames his passions and his desires, as we saw when we were studying that seventh chapter. A most important thing, this. As I've often pointed out, it shows the whole danger of this moral teaching and teaching about sex at the present time. You say, let us teach these people about this, and they won't do it, won't they? You'll stimulate their appetite to do it. In telling them not to do a thing, you're introducing them to the thing. You're making them worse than they were by prohibiting it, by telling them that it's wrong. And so you've got the same doctrine exactly taught in the first chapter of the epistle to Titus, in verse 15. Unto the pure, all things are pure. But unto them that are defiled and unbelieving is nothing pure, but even their mind and conscience is defiled. And you'll find people reading books on sex and morality ostensibly to do themselves good, and they'll tell you afterwards that they were much worse after they'd read it than they were before. That's because of the evil that is already there. When the law comes and righteousness and justice speak, it aggravates the evil in the evil men. Very well, but then let me give you a third way in which he does it. God hardens the hearts of men by the display of his mercy. Was there anything that so infuriated the Pharisees and scribes 
as to see our blessed Lord and Savior sitting down with publicans and sinners. There he is, sitting with publicans and sinners, showing his interest in, in them and his love to them. And it made the Pharisee and the scribe ten times worse than they were before. His display of mercy infuriated them, hardened their hearts. It was just this element of mercy and of grace and compassion in our Lord's teaching and life that finally made those people crucify him and put him to death. So the very display of God's mercy becomes a means of hardening the hard hearts of unbelieving sinners. Another way in which God does it clearly, and this is my fourth, is that he even initiates desires in people. Now we've got to be clear about this. What do you make of that case of Joseph's brethren? They plotted against their brother and they took that terrible action. Yet Joseph says, and says rightly, that God did it. Now I remember hearing a man preach on that once. He preached on that one, uh, Genesis 50:20, And he was, until a few years ago, regarded as a great and popular evangelical. He read out his text and his first remark was this. Of course, Joseph was quite wrong. It was very nice of him to say so, but he was quite wrong. Well, again, you see, we sit in judgment upon Joseph as we do upon the Apostle Paul himself. But Joseph wasn't wrong. Joseph was absolutely right. You see, what that preacher tried to say was that though these men had really done it and it was a terrible thing, that God overruled it and turned it in the right way. That isn't what Joseph says. And that isn't what happened. It was God who sent Joseph down to Egypt. He knew about the famine that was coming. It was he who did it. He did it through Joseph's brethren. How? Well, I say he will even initiate a desire. He can initiate thoughts. But you say, isn't that creating evil? No. They were already evil men. He simply uses the evil that is already there to bring about his own purpose. He didn't make them sinners. He didn't make them evil. He didn't make them unjust. They already were. All God does is to take these men and use them to bring his own great purpose to pass. He's not created evil at all. But the general stimulus of God's influence can thus work upon the evil mind to do something very wrong. But ultimately it is to bring to pass God's purpose. So my fifth and my last explanation is this. That we are actually taught that God even uses Satan. He used him in the case of Job. Even Satan is used of God at times. Now there's a very interesting statement which must have perplexed you in 1 Corinthians 5 where Paul talks about handing a man over to Satan for the punishment of the flesh in order that the spirit might be saved. Handing a man over to Satan. What does it mean? Well it means this, that when a man won't listen to scriptural teaching, says the apostle, that man of yours guilty of incest and so on, well I've handed him over to Satan. Let Satan handle him and that will bring him to his senses. Very well. I'm suggesting that here we are dealing with the obverse, as it were, of that. That God sometimes hardens men by taking away all his restraints and simply, as it were, handing them over to Satan. I believe that you and I are living in such an age. I think it's the explanation of the times in which we are living. That God is handing over evil people to a reprobate mind. This is the explanation of all this filth and mockery on your television sets on Saturday nights and so on. God is as it were withdrawing the restraints, handing over to Satan. 
hardening for his own great and glorious purpose. We don't see the purpose yet, but we know that God has a purpose. He's done this many times in the long history of the human race. He allows this hardening to take place until everything is absolutely hopeless. And then he comes in, in the power of his might. Why does he do it like that, you say? I'll tell you. If he did it in another way, well then you and I would be ready to say that we'd done it. We'd have said it's our evangelism that's done it, or it's our prayers that have done it. But you see, God allows it to become so hard that it's obvious to everybody that nobody could do it but he himself. Well, that's only a partial explanation. I see our time is more than gone, so we'll have to leave it at that for this evening. Well, now, there is the central statement that God produced Pharaoh at that point and hardened his heart in order that his great power might be shown through him. Well, God willing, we'll go on to draw this out and to expound it still further next Friday evening and see the great and grand conclusion at which the apostle arrives. Let us pray. O Lord our God, we do indeed thank thee again for thy word. We thank thee for the scriptures. We thank thee, O Lord, that thou hast not left us to ourselves and to our own thoughts and speculations. We bless and praise thy name for thine inspired word. For the servants thou didst raise up to whom thou didst give the revelation and whom thou didst guide and carry along by thy spirit in order that they might write infallibly what thou hadst given and revealed unto them. Lord, keep us humble, we pray thee. Deliver us, O God, from the folly of trusting to our own opinions and understandings to the modern mind and modern knowledge. Help us to see that we are shut up entirely into thy blessed truth which thy blessed Spirit alone can unlock and unfold and reveal unto us. O oh God, keep us, we pray thee, ever in this place of simplicity as it is in Christ, and ever ready to learn of thee. Hear us, O oh God, and be with us as we all go upon our homeward ways. Bless us there and in all our associations in life, and grant that in all things we may ever live and speak and all we do and are to the praise of the glory of thy grace. And now, may the grace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and the love of God, and the fellowship and the communion of the Holy Spirit, abide and continue with us, now this night and evermore. Amen. hope that you've been helped by the preaching of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the MLJ Trust retains exclusive copyright ownership to all audio files of Dr. Lloyd-Jones sermons, including all derivatives such as translations, modifications, or edited versions of the files. You must gain written permission to license, distribute, or broadcast the audio files, and under no circumstance may the files be offered for sale to or by a third party. You can find our contact information on our website at mljtrust.org. Thank you.